Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're studying verses 2 through 13, particularly tonight, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. But if you'll recall, after introducing the chapter in this way, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 1, Paul introduces the situation that he's in. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And we, we studied in, in past lessons the magnificence of this, this statement alone. Paul could have blamed the Jews. He could have blamed the Romans for being where he was, but he didn't blame anybody. He realized that he was where he was because he was a servant of the Lord Jesus, and this is where Jesus wanted him. And as soon as Jesus didn't want him there anymore, Paul's not going to be there anymore. And this is an act of extreme maturity. And then in my Bible, it probably has something like this in your Bible too. There's a little dash at the end of verse 1 indicating that Paul is going to make a digression here. He's going to digress from verses, from verses 2 all the way through verse 13, and then in verse 14 he'll start a prayer. Now, when we digress, sometimes that's a little bit of an aggravation. When God digresses, there's a purpose to it, and there's certainly a purpose here. And in this, di- in this divinely inspired digression, uh, Paul in- introduces us to this mystery doctrine. In in Chapter 2, verses 2 through 13, can be outlined this way. We studied verses 2 through 6 last time. This was an ex- explanation of the mystery. And tonight, we'll study in verses 7 through 13, Paul's ministry of making known the mystery to the Gentiles. In verse 2 of chapter 3, we saw Paul's responsibility to dispense the mystery. He starts off in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me, for you, The implication here is that they have indeed heard, the idea being something like this, at any rate, if you have, have, you have heard, as I know you have. The point is that these people that Paul's writing to should have known better than to function with any form of racial animosity. They had already been taught that, that racial animosity within the body of Christ is wrong. It's verboten. It should not happen. And what Paul has written so far in Ephesians, in chapters 1 and 2, particularly in chapter 2, but what he's written so far should have served as a reminder of what they had previously learned. Paul taught these folks for at least three years, or almost three years, rather, and there can be little doubt that even after Paul has gone, and he's been gone for five to six years now, that's true, but there can be little doubt that even after he left, the Ephesian elders followed up on what Paul had taught. So there is no excuse for a lack of unity in the church at Ephesus. And there's no excuse ever for racial animosity. Now, in those days, the racial animosity was between Jew and Gentile, or between Gentile and Jew. Today, the racial animosity may be something different, but the principle still stands. There is no room for racial animosity in the body of Christ. That grieves the Holy Spirit. We were all saved the same way. And it doesn't matter what color one's skin is. We all came to Christ by grace through faith. You remember chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul began by writing of the administration of God's grace that was given to him and concluded this in verse 13, we'll see tonight, by asking them not to be discouraged over his imprisonment in Rome. We saw last time the term administration, the Greek term oikonomia, and it has the sense of stewardship or a trust a trust that is to be dispensed. It's, trans, it's the word that's translated dispensation in the King James and the New King James. 
but it's probably probably better rendered stewardship or administration here, at least in this passage. The emphasis here seems to be on the office or the responsibility, more than maybe even the function of dispensing the information. To put it another way, the Ephesians had heard of Paul's function, Paul rather Paul's position as an administrator, and he's to administer God's grace. Now, it's not like grace was unknown in times past, and, and just now people became, became to be aware that God was a gracious God. Sometimes people get a wrong idea, especially from some New Testament teaching. They misinterpret it, and they think the Old Testament was only law, and the New Testament was grace. And that there's no grace in the Old Testament, there's no law in the New Testament. Neither one of those statements is true. There is grace in the Old Testament, or no one would have ever been saved. Certainly there's law in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is known for its law. But there's grace in the Old Testament, or no one would have ever been saved. There's grace in the New Testament, to be sure, but guess what? There are rules and regulations. If you want to call it law, that's fine. Not the Mosaic law. Not the Mosaic law, but there is law. There are rules and regulations in the New Testament. And those who, sometimes people go off the, get out of the barn on this one, and they feel like we're not under any form of law in the New Testament. We call those people antinomian. The, the word nomos, meaning law in Greek, antinomian. You see the word nomos in there. Well, if somebody calls you an antinomian, they're probably not complimenting you. And sometimes we might think, oh, yeah, well, there's no law in the New Testament. Yes, there's law in the New Testament. It's the law of Christ. It's the law of love. And we have many, many commands in the New Testament. But I, I want to stress to you here, Paul's not saying, I'm the first one to ever preach grace. Far from it. We have grace all through the Old Testament. And we studied that in some detail last time, so we won't revisit that anymore. Paul is not the only one, he's not the only one to whom this has been revealed, this whole idea of the mystery and the stewardship of God's grace. He's given, however, the primary role in the dissemination of this great truth, the content of which we saw in verse 6. Now, in verses 3 through 5, we saw when and to whom it was revealed, and we were introduced to this very important term, the Greek term musterion, which we translate mystery. Now, musterion was a truth previously unknown. Now, we think of the idea of mystery, at least I do when I first think of mystery. I think of Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie, uh, the whodunits, or in more modern times, you think some of these Michael Douglas movies and some of these things. I love these movies. I, I try, I, actually, I watched the, the Sherlock Holmes, the new Sherlock Holmes movie recently. wasn't my favorite, but, but that's okay. It's a, it's a different Sherlock Holmes, to be sure. Although I've talked to people that have read the books, they say actually some of the stuff in the, in the new movie is probably truer to what was in the books than some of the old movies. But I'm a little bit of a traditionalist. I like the old one better. But this is really not what is being spoken of here. It's not something that, where, where there are certain clues that a detective could figure out. And if, and if that detective worked hard enough and uncovered those clues, that this mystery could be unfolded. In other words, it wasn't as though Paul... He's not saying that I could have looked back into the Old Testament and I could have done a careful and a logical and a reasonable and rational study of the Old Testament and I would have come up with what I'm going to present to you in verse 6 as, as we're calling a mystery. That's not what it was at all. So this is not a whodunit mystery where we can uncover certain facts and reason our way through it. What Paul is telling us here is that he got this not by reasoning his way through it, not by a careful search of the Old Testament, but by revelation, 
what I have up on here, if you can, if you're close enough to see it, this this is not this was not Paul didn't de- determine or deduce the doctrine of the mystery. What it was, it was uncovered, like like a piece of wallpaper being torn back to reveal what's underneath it. He got this by revelation. He didn't get it by careful inquiry, and that's what he wants us to know. This is a truth previously unknown, and it's given to him by revelation, which, in fact, he had already written briefly about. Not in another epistle we saw last time, not in another epistle, but in this epistle, already in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. In other words, Paul received the truth of this mystery not from a diligent search of the Old Testament scriptures or by an exercise of reason, but by direct divine disclosure. This was not something known in ages past. So he couldn't have gone to the Old Testament. It wasn't as though everybody just missed it. You ever, you ever hear preachers do that sometimes? They say, I've, I've looked at this passage and everybody that's ever studied this before me missed it. And here's what they missed. Well, I love what Lewis Berry Chafer said about that. He said, if you look at a passage, and he was speaking to people at Dallas Seminary back in 1948, but it is just as true today. He says, if you look at a passage, and you study that passage, and you come up with a conclusion that as far as you can tell, no one else has ever come up with, no one else in the history of the church has ever come up with the conclusion that you came up with, Chafer said, it doesn't mean that you're wrong, but it means that you're probably wrong, and you need to look at it again. So it's not as though everybody in the Old Testament missed this mystery. This is new revelation that is given directly to Paul. I hope you see that. That's actually a very important idea in the, in the overall discussion within the Christian community with regard to this passage. This is not something that could have been uncovered. This is new information, and we'll, be, we'll see what the specifics of it were in just a moment. The mystery mentioned in Ephesians was hidden in God in ages past. So it is not, again, one more time, it's not something that could have been uncovered by human ingenuity or careful study. Then in verse 4, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. The the Ephesian Christians would be able to understand his insight into the mystery of Christ by reading again what he had already written in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. There was a reason why we spent several weeks on that very important passage. It's really foundational, I think, for what Paul is doing in this letter. Now, in in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he also writes about the mystery. There's a different emphasis there. There's the same basic message, but a different emphasis. In Colossians, Paul is speaking about the, the Christological aspect of the mystery. In Ephesians, it's more the ecclesiological, meaning the aspect as it relates to the church and function within the church. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 reads this way. This is, this is a parallel passage. Remember, Ephesians and Colossians were written essentially at the same time. Paul says this in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, here's that word again, mysterion, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, that's the mystery as Paul writes it in Colossians. So it has a Christological emphasis there where it's ecclesiological or related to the church in Ephesians. But he's talking about the same thing. The idea of Christ in us, we're in Christ. Remember the term in him that we've seen so many times in Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Well, he is also in us. So there's a little different emphasis in the parallel passage 
But overall, he's still talking about the same thing. Then in verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. When we studied this last week, we emphasized that while Paul is the primary individual that is given the responsibility for the dissemination of this mystery, he's not the only one that knew of it. And I think that's important too. We really need to be careful when there's, when there's a single individual, and that's the only one that has that truth. Now, if, got, you know, if that individual can demonstrate that they are indeed a messenger of God, and in times past they did that with signs and wonders and miracles, then certainly they should be believed. But I find it a little bit comforting that Paul wasn't the only one that knew about this mystery. The other apostles and prophets, which was an office that I believe was in, in vogue before the completion and the circulation, uh, distribution of the canon of Scripture, I believe that that office has morphed or synthesized, maybe a better word, itself into the office of pastor today. But there were other people that knew about it, other people that had this same revelation given to them, but Paul, because of his unique position in the body of Christ, this uniquely gifted man, was given the responsibility to disseminate the information. And now in verse 6, what we all were waiting for, we studied it fairly quickly at the end of our time together last time, so I want to review it tonight. What is this mystery? What is the content of the mystery as far as Paul is concerned in Ephesians? Remember, in Colossians, the content of the mystery was Christ in you. The hope of glory. But here, in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says to be specific. Now, he's telling us what the mystery is. I appreciate this very much. You know, when you study uh, prophecy, you, know, you look at a book like Zechariah, like we're studying on Sunday night, or maybe even the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, it's oh so helpful when the divinely inspired author will interpret the figures for us. Now, the divinely inspired author, the Apostle Paul, is just going to tell us. He's just going to come right out and tell us what the mystery is. And he does it in verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They're fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ, fellow participants in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that is the mystery unfolded. That's the revelation. Now here, here I want to say it again. Paul was not going to be able to find that with a careful and thoughtful study of the Old Testament. It's not there. This is something that's given to him directly. But watch, you remember, it wasn't just given to him. It was given to the other apostles as well and to the prophets. This information that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ, fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ, fellow participants in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. This information was given to all the apostles, but Paul was given the privilege of disseminating it, or being the primary vehicle of that dissemination. Gentiles are fellow heirs. We saw in chapter 2, verse 14, that both groups were made into one. In chapter 2, verse 19, that we're fellow citizens. Chapter 2, verse 20, we have the same foundation. Chapter 2, verse 21, we're fitted together. So in view of this, it follows logically that Gentiles would be fellow heirs. Now, I want to say again, probably say it many more times before we study, finish the study of the Ephesians, that he's not speaking of the promises that were made to Abram. The church does not become the recipients of the promises that were made to Abram. What was promised to Abram and Abraham was, would be, will be given to Abraham and his seed. 
But what Paul is speaking about here when it means the fellow participants in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel is he's speaking of all the combined blessing that is to come to the church. It won't be just simply a Jewish experience, and it won't be simply a Gentile experience, because in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile. You get the point. In Christ there's no male or female. There's no slave or free. There are no racial distinctions. There are no gender distinctions, and there are no economic distinctions in the body of Christ. Now, after one comes to Christ, this may be a revelation to you, but if you're a male before you come to Christ, you're still a male after you come to Christ. Now, I know some people have surgeries and change all that, but that aside, your gender doesn't change. If you're poor, when you come to, when you come to Christ, the, the probability is you're still going to be poor after you come to Christ. I'm talking about economically. Some people will promise you differently. Don't believe them. There's no promise of economic prosperity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an incredible promise of spiritual prosperity, though. So you may be poor economically before you come to Christ, and chances are you're going to be poor economically after you come to Christ. You would have been born, if you were born Jewish before you come to Christ, your genetics are still Jewish after you come to Christ. So what in the world does Paul mean? That in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. He means there are no distinctions in the body of Christ. We're all fellow heirs. We're all fellow members of the same body. We're all fellow participants in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. You know another way to put it? As far as God's concerned, there's no pecking order in the body of Christ. True. It's a very true statement that, that certain people have certain more public responsibilities in the body of Christ. Certain people are given leadership duties in the body of Christ. But it doesn't, and please listen so carefully, it doesn't mean they're a superior person in God's eyes in the body of Christ. They just have a different role. And oh, if, if, if Christian men and women could understand this. This is one of the things that I talk with Christian women particularly about when we're doing marriage ceremonies. Because a lot of Christian women have this attitude that the Bible kind of makes women a second-class citizen because a woman is supposed to submit to the leadership of her husband. Far from it. The last time I looked, Jesus Christ submitted to the leadership of his heavenly Father. And we, none of us would deny that Jesus was equal in position with his Father. So there are no distinctions in that sense in the body of Christ. The Gentiles are fellow members of the body. The two have become one. The Gentiles are fellow participants in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, the Apostle Paul continues on with an explanation of his ministry of making known this mystery to the Gentiles. He says in verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. This is, this is, it was really special to me when this truth became apparent. In grace, or it was an act of grace, that Paul, that, that Paul was given by God an opportunity to serve. Paul looks at his opportunity to serve his Savior as an act of grace on God's part. Now, I don't know about you, but I often don't, didn't think of grace that way. When I think of grace, well, he, 
He gave me certain riches that I didn't deserve. Maybe the other side of the coin, mercy, I didn't get certain discipline that I did deserve. When I think of grace, I think of God just handing me this big bundle of blessing. But sometimes, somehow we just don't think of the opportunity to serve as being part of that big bundle of blessing that he gives us. But that's the way Paul looked at it. And this is particularly poignant in view of the fact of where Paul finds himself when he's writing this. He's in prison in Rome. But yet, he's, yet he still considers it an act of grace on God's part to give him an opportunity to serve. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it inspirational that God, that Paul, this man of, of God, considers it a gift, considers it something really wonderful that God did, to allow him to serve him and to be in prison? Now, you've got to be a mature believer, man or woman, before you're going to start thinking that way. The opportunity Paul was given in grace to serve by proclaiming the gospel. Now, this wasn't done on his own power. None of us could do it on our own power. This, this was according to the working of his power. And that's a gracious thing too, isn't it? God gives us first the opportunity to serve. Now, watch, this is not a deal you're going to get on TV. I don't know, I don't know any Internet offer that's going to be better than this, For no matter what it is. If it's for a hotel or if it's for a cruise or no telling what it would be, get this. Not only did he give us the opportunity in grace, but he enables us to do it. He gives us the power to do it. Now, that's a pretty good deal. And then on top of it, we have to realize he doesn't need any of us. Paul realizes that. He could have used somebody else besides Paul. That's why Paul was privileged to be able to serve in whatever capacity it may be. He didn't need us, yet he gave us the opportunity and then empowered us to do it. And then to make matters even better... The Bible tells us that if we, if we follow through faithfully with that divine enablement and, and say yes to his will for our lives, then there's special blessing even above eternal life that we get in heaven. Now, that's a pretty good deal. I think it's a good deal, and Paul certainly did as well. Then in verse 8, this is a, this is a passage often quoted. I'm not sure it's totally applied the way it should be. He says, to me... The very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Again, he realizes that it's a gracious thing God did. Now, by now, Paul has been beaten up several times. He's undergone extreme hardships. He's been in prison a couple times so far. He's been ridiculed. He's been, he's been shunned by the very people that he used to seek their approbation. But yet he still feels like... It's a great privilege that was given to him to serve. Again, this is not a motivation you're going to find yourself having if you're not maturing in your relationship with Christ. And in fact, this is the way I think you can test yourself. If you find yourself in the middle of whatever ministry that you have, and every single one of us here has a ministry, they're all different, but all of us have a ministry of some sort. If you find yourself in the function of that ministry, getting depressed, getting discouraged, getting aggravated, starting to feel sorry for oneself. Look at me, look at me, look at what God's got me doing. And then even worse, look at them, look at what God's got them doing. Why is he letting them do that and, me, and making me do this? Maybe you, you might have thought that before. If you find yourself thinking that way, you're nowhere near close 
to maturing in your relationship with Christ, even if at one time you were. Right? If you're thinking that way, your eyes are on the wrong person, my friend. Your eyes are on a person with a, with a little P, that's you, instead of the person with a capital P, and that's God. Because if our eyes are on Christ, the one who gave us that job in the first place, and the one who empowers us to do it, then we're not going to get down and discouraged and disgusted and irritated in ministry. Oh, certainly, there's, there's a time when everybody has a little bit of, of angst in ministry, where, where people have down days. But I'm talking about a, a consistency, where day after day you're feeling sorry for yourself. Why did he give me this to do? Rather than, thank you, Lord. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity to serve you. I know I'm only, only going to be alive a limited number of years on this earth. And then after that, clock stops ticking on my opportunity to faithfully serve you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity today. Well, that's what Paul would have done. Now, he says, to me, the very least of the saints, he considered himself the least worthy of all the believers in the church age to have received such a privilege. I don't think that this was some sort of false humility on Paul's part. You hear testimony sometimes of believers in the Lord Jesus, and you can just tell. I mean, I don't know. I can just tell. Maybe that's a certain perception. But you can tell. When they get up there and they do some, some form of, of humble exhortation, you can tell they don't, they don't mean it for a minute. They might be saying, listen, I'm just, I'm just one of the least of God's servants. But the way they're saying it, you know, that they, they want you to say, no, you're not. You're the one of the greatest. You're the greatest. That's what they really want. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm so bad. Come on. Come on tell me. No, 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 you're not. not. Not really that bad. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Just kidding. But Paul had no illusions. Here's the thing about Paul that I think was one of the things that made him great. Somebody called me up uh, actually from another city not too long ago, and said that I think their pastor had said that, that Paul was a very arrogant man. Wow, I don't see that. In, in fact, I see the polar opposite. I read something like Philippians chapter 2, and, and I, I don't see an arrogant man at all. I see a very humble man, a man who maybe at one time had been arrogant, and it's possible the individual misunderstood the pastor. Let's hope so. At one time, he probably was arrogant because he, was, he had everything going for him from a human perspective. But no, not after he became a believer. He knew from whence he had come. And as best as I can tell throughout all of Paul's letters to the rest of his life, he never forgot it. I don't think he ever forgot what he had done before he came to Christ and realized that he didn't deserve anything but discipline and punishment from our Lord. He didn't deserve the opportunity to serve. He thought it was a great blessing, and he realized it. We might impart celebrity status on people like the Apostle Paul, but I guarantee you the Apostle Paul would not have ever assumed that for himself. He would not have ever wanted to be treated like a celebrity. There, there have been a couple occasions where I've been in places overseas where, where not only I but a couple of the people in our party were treated like celebrities. And it made me enormously uncomfortable. I won't say the country, but I went into a crusade one time, and, and it was set up to where there was maybe three to 5,000 people already there. We came down the middle aisle. The band was playing, and people were cheering. And just for a split second, I've got to admit, for a split second, it felt kind of good. You know? 
I admit it. It felt, it felt really cool, and then I caught myself. And I thought, oh, no, that's not the way you ought to feel. And as soon as we got up there, I was the one that was nominated to do it for the group. Uh, I got up and said, hey, listen, we appreciate the welcome, but don't treat us like celebrities. We're about to tell you about the celebrity, the only one that really matters. Paul would never, ever have accepted any form of celebrity status on himself. We tend to do that because we've got the top 25 football teams in the land. We've got the top 10 at 10 Christian songs. We've, I don't think they've come up with the top 10 sermons of the week, but one of these days that's going to happen too. The top 10 prayers of the week, that'll happen. We've got the top 10 everything. And we all have our list. Who was the greatest believer in the New Testament? Guess what? I don't know and neither do you. Now, I know the Apostle Paul was, was an, used incredibly of God, but I'm not going to be shocked at all if we get to heaven and we see a, a roster of people standing up there and Christ says, look at my wonderful servants. And they're nobody we ever heard of because they, they served in anonymity and did what they did with love for God, realizing that it was a true blessing that they even got the opportunity to do it. And guess what? That could be you. Doesn't matter what your position is in terms of your function within the body of Christ, but if you do it with the right attitude and you do it with the faithfulness, that's what made Paul great, with the faithfulness and humility that he had, you could be right up there with him. So you don't have to have a big name in order to be blessed greatly at the judgment seat of Christ. Now the first aspect of Paul's ministry was to preach Christ to the Gentiles. In verse 9, he tells us what the second aspect of this ministry was, and that was explaining the mystery of the church to, to everyone, Jew and Gentile, both. So the first was he got the opportunity of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Did Paul preach to Jews? Well, you bet he did. It seems like everywhere he went, his custom was to go to the synagogue first. Uh, but he preached primarily to the Gentiles. He went into the Gentile areas. Did Peter preached to Gentiles? Oh, I'm sure he did on occasion. But his primary ministry was to preach to the Jews. So first aspect, preaching to the Gentiles. The second aspect of his ministry, at least as he outlines it here, is explaining the mystery, these things I have on the board right now, this, the things that are on your uh, supplemental handout in your hand, explaining the mystery to the church. Even though God had not revealed the church earlier, it was his plan from the beginning. Look at verse 9. And to bring to light what, the, what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So the, the church wasn't God's second choice. He always knew that the church was going to come, but it was a mystery in the past. It didn't take God by surprise. It was his plan from the beginning. Now in verse 10. As we just have a few minutes left, let's, we'll cover these three verses, these four verses. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this is not something we're going to spend a lot of time on tonight, but I want, I want to mention it to you. We'll come back and cover this again at another time. But this is one of those New Testament references indicating the church has a corporate testimony to angelic beings. The phrase rulers and authorities in heavenly places, that refers to angelic beings. Now, it's debatable whether it's just the elect angels or the elect and the fallen angels. I suspect it's all of them. But 
That aside, this is one of those references that lets us know that we're being watched. At least, as, at the very least, as a church, we're being watched. I think we can also say that our marriages are being watched as well. That seemed, that marriage seems to be a corporate testimony, not only for human beings, but for the heavenly beings as well. And I think we're watched individually as, as recipients of God's grace. But here we know that the church, through the church, heavenly beings are a, are a witness to the testimony of God's grace. Paul ministered in these two ways, so the manifold wisdom of God might appear clearly to these angelic hosts. Manifold could be made up, could be translated this way, made up of different kinds, if you prefer. So it's not just one thing the church teaches, but there's a variety. Verse 11, we see something of the omniscience of God. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he had carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fact that the Jews would reject Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as their Messiah, did not take God by surprise. Nor does anything else. This is part of God's eternal purpose. God's infinite perfections are, in a sense, one. We break them down so that we can, help, we can better understand them. We speak of God's omniscience as if it was a piece, of the pie, a piece of the pie that we could take out and analyze separately from the others sometimes. You really can't do that. We speak of omnipotence the same way, omnipresence the same way, sovereignty, love, and so forth. But that's not really the way God is. God is the sum total, Charles Ryrie said, he's the sum total of his infinite perfections. And while sometimes, just by logical necessity, we need to take one out and study, for example, the love of God, or the sovereignty of God, or, or the omniscience of God, with God, that's not really the way it is. He is the sum total of all of that. In other words, his sovereignty is never going to act in a way that's inconsistent with his love. You see, there has to be that kind of understanding, that kind of balance. His omniscience is going to act consistently with his sovereignty, his omnipotence, omnipotence with his omniscience. That's what we mean by part of the package. So this whole idea, this whole concept of the mystery, the fact that Gentiles would be fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow participants of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, this did not take God by surprise. He never learned that this was going to happen. He always knew. It's a part of his eternal purpose. He always knew. That's a very, very important concept. In whom, verse 12, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We see there's, a, there's an abiding effect of the fact that we're in Christ, that we're fellow heirs, that we're fellow members of the body, that we're fellow participants of the promise. Because that means we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Some people have a view of God that is, is imbalanced. Most people have a view of God that's imbalanced, I think. Some people look at God as their best friend, and, and they, they treat him, at least in my view, with, with a total lack of respect. They get mad at him when he doesn't do what exactly it is that they want him to do. Uh, they, they don't... Um, they don't pray to him with the respect that our Lord outlined in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. 
our, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your name is above every other name. You are the most incredible person in the universe. They don't do that. And, and so they have an imbalanced understanding and then in the relationship with God, and it shows. When times get tough, they tend to get mad at him because he's their best friend. He didn't do what he wanted to do. Other people have the opposite view. They, they look at God as though he's so totally inapproachable that they don't take anything to him at all. Well, in this passage here, in verse 12, we, we see a, a balance. In whom, this is Jesus Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. There's a personal relationship. Yes, he is my best friend. And yes, he is the Lord of the universe. Both. Now, if you're going to err, I think it would be better to err on the side of understanding that he's the Lord of the universe first. Better safe than sorry there, but don't err so badly that you don't come to him. That you start to treat him like a machine. He's not a machine. He's a person who loves you deeply. And because of his omniscience, I do believe he had you in mind. He had me in mind personally. How that, how that happens, my mind can't do it. But he had both of us personally, all of us personally in mind when he died for us. That's a humbling thing to think. How that works out, I don't know. But in his omniscience, it certainly did. Then finally, in verse 13, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulation on your behalf, for they are your glory. In order to understand verse 13, we need to let our eyes glance in the last moment or so we have here tonight, Back at verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Then in verse 13, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. You see in verse 1, for the sake of you Gentiles. Verse 13, on your behalf, therefore your glory. The Ephesians should not view the present circumstances of the Apostle Paul as a tragedy, but simply as a part of his ministry. He's made clear to us that he considers it an act of grace that he's doing what he's doing and that he is where he is. But we ought to be careful with this too because this is not cold-hearted or calloused in any way. This in no means, this by no means indicates that we disregard the sufferings and the hardships of those that faithfully serve Christ. We shouldn't... We shouldn't hear about someone who's in prison in China and say, well, praise God, they're in prison. That's exactly where God wants them. Praise God for the grace of God that they're in prison. That's not the proper application here. And that's not really what Paul is saying. But he's, saying, he's telling these people that he loves so much, don't be discouraged. God's still on his throne. The fact that I'm here is part of his eternal purpose, and I recognize that. I recognize that I'm here by the grace of God, and my friends, I'm happy to serve. Now, in other places, he does indicate that he'd love to have prayer for him, for himself. And so the, the, the balance here would be we do pray for, like, this lady in China, that we will pray for her release, we pray for her comfort, provided that that's the Lord's will. At the same time, recognizing that this didn't get past God, neither did your problem get past God either. He knew all about it, and he's known about it from eternity past. Now, he is gracious, and he wouldn't allow you to be going through what you're going through right now, if he didn't think you could handle it. And he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have allowed Paul to be in prison right here if he didn't think he could handle it. But looking back on it almost 2,000 years later, I think we can start to see maybe a little bit of why Paul was in prison. He got to write four incredible letters there that we study and study and love and study and study and love. 
Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And there probably was a lot more to it than that. So it, by, by Paul saying that I don't want you to lose heart, my, my tribulations are for your glory, it doesn't mean that we disregard his sufferings or the sufferings of others in the service of our Lord. And again, that should be every single one of us here tonight. It's critical that we keep our eye on the big picture. And to close this out tonight, Charles Ryrie put it this way. He said, the mystery of Ephesians 3 is the equality of Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. This equality and this body was not revealed in the Old Testament. They were made known only after the coming of Christ by the Spirit to the apostles and prophets, including Paul, but not excluding others.